scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we read verses 22 through 25. Hear now the word of God. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do that for us. Heavenly Father, even as we are looking at the difficult and practical subject of how to avoid sharing in the guilt of others by ordaining them too quickly, would you teach us something larger than just this? Teach us how you regard our service and the importance that you place on character. Send your spirit to give us hearts that hunger to be more like you and use this text to drive us forward. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I know Paul says don't only drink water, but I'm going to drink water. Um, one of the hard things about being a, a Christian in 2022, and this is not new to 2022, but it certainly persists in 2022, is that uh, it feels more like any other time, more than any other time, by, uh, we are surrounded by news stories about ministers failing in a variety of ways. Uh, and the failures span the gamut. They, they, sometimes they're leadership failures where church leaders attempting to get their own way throw their weight around. They, they intimidate church members or church staff. They run their churches more like cutthroat businesses than they do like ministries. Uh, we have these things presented to us in living color <clears throat> in ways that I think even 10 years ago we didn't. Uh, you just have to listen to all the episodes of the Mars Hill podcast to know that, that it is possible to get an unpleasantly up-close seat to the sad realities of the things that can go wrong in churches. Uh, but if it isn't leadership failures, then it's outright moral failures that are just embarrassing. Uh, they, they make it look like many ministers of God have almost no standards, or at the very least, that they don't love Jesus the way they encourage the congregation to love Jesus when they're in the pulpit. Uh, I frequently try to remind us of this, that our problems, we should not look at our problems in a self-centered way. Uh, these are not exclusively the modern church's problems. Uh, it's not like we invented these problems. It's not like we invented problems with church leadership, and yet... Today's passage reminds us that actually, because these problems are connected with human nature, they do, in fact, span the centuries. They go back, back to Paul's day. So the issue of healthy church leadership is not a small thing. In fact, the the more time that passes, you know, when I was in seminary, I thought the most important thing was everybody needs to have a really good systematic theology. Uh, What a dumb kid I was, right? (laughs) That is probably not the deepest problem that that we have. Um, and by the way, every 10 years, you look back 10 years and go, what a dumb kid I was. And, you know, 
Even if you're 70, you look back at 60 and go, man, what a dumb kid I was. It's just, it's the rule. If you're not doing that, then, then you haven't been growing. Um, but you know what? The longer that I'm in the church, the more, uh, the more situations I witness, the more pastors I see fail, the more churches that I see in distress, the more important that you realize that character, especially of church leadership is. You realize how important it is. And you realize how a failure in that area can just cascade like dominoes. Now, it would be really easy for me to just sort of stand up here and, and talk about other churches or other pastors for the remainder of the message. You know, it is the easiest thing in the world to trash on, and every, on everybody else. And yet the point of this passage from Paul is for us to avoid the problems that we see around us. But, but how do we do that? What is his sort of recipe for doing that? Well, to begin with, we have to admit that we often can do things in the church that exacerbate problems. One of those things is what Paul addresses this morning. Namely, it's this problem of placing someone in leadership before they're really ready. And so this morning, let's address what Paul's concerned with. Paul is concerned with the temptation first to rush. He's concerned with the danger of sin. And then he's also concerned to make sure that even as he's talking about these things, he's giving this this, uh, this, this young minister, the hope of holiness. So, so there are a couple of warnings here, and then there is this, this hopeful pet message at the close. And so, so first, first Paul presents us with the temptation to rush. He, he says it like this in verse 22. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So for Paul... This phrase, laying on of hands, he's used it earlier already. It's shorthand for ordination. He already talked to Timothy about that moment where the presbytery laid their hands on you. That's what he told Timothy already. We talked about this uh, already. And when we talked about ordination before, I mentioned that the laying on of hands is a sharing of responsibility. It's conveying responsibility to another. It's symbolic of this recognition that someone is called to share in the office of the church. And that's what Paul is discussing here. He's not saying, don't be in a hurry to pray for people. Like the laying on of hands, he's not talking about praying. I don't know any situation where Paul would say, don't be too quick to pray for somebody. Uh, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ordination. Now, just as a reminder, what did we say ordination was? We, we talked about this already. Ordination is the public recognition, recognition by God's church that a man has been called to an office of the church. And ordination is, ordination is attended by the laying on of hands by the elders and by prayer. And so when we ordain somebody, we're recognizing what God has already done. God has called this man to be an officer, and then we're laying hands on him, and we're praying for him. And in that moment, we also talked about this, God gives this, this person the gift that he needs to execute his office, whatever that might be. But there's a gift that God gives when men are ordained. And so when we are ordaining, what are we doing? We're calling upon God. Because there's nothing magical about the elders, nothing special necessarily about the elders. It's about the prayer, and it's about God's blessing. And so you're calling upon God to bless this man so that he can actually do the work that God has given for him to do. And so what Paul is saying here is that the church should be slow to make someone an elder. The reason why? 
Well, remember, remember what we said. Ordination normally involves the laying on of hands. It involves the, the laying on of hands, which conveys a transfer of responsibility. I think he's actually saying that if, if we as elders are in a hurry to make a man a fellow elder, but we don't exercise due diligence and we're not careful, then he says we share in the responsibility if we rushed and we ended up making a terrible mistake. And that's why I think he adds this point. He says, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So he's saying that making someone an elder too quickly means you share in his sin. Now we'll talk about that in the the next point. But for the moment, I want to mention this very practical temptation that elders face. Um, Often the work of elders is hard. It is, it is actually an absolute blessing, so don't listen to, to me saying that it's hard and hear it being a complaint. Uh, sometimes the most important things, the things that are the hardest, are the things that are the most worthwhile. Um, but the work of an elder can be difficult. It can be exhausting, depending on the situation. And, and it's very easy to look at more elders as the solution, as the way out of a cycle of hard and heavy work. I'll mention a couple of, of examples so you kind of have an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, I have a friend who's a pastor of a small church where there are two elders. And there is something about a larger number of elders that gives the decisions a greater weight. Now, I don't think it should be that way, but it is. Where it makes it easier for the church to accept difficult decisions that the elders of the church may make, Right. Uh, one time he told me that the session made a decision, and then after the decision was made, there was an irate church member who said, stop saying that the session did this. It's just the two of you. It's just the two of you, all right? Um, I can see you. I know your names. I know your faces. Uh, I know your flaws. I know all about you, right? And, and so instead of thinking, well, the session has made a decision, they were disrespectful because the session was smaller, and you can imagine, right, they're, they're targets for criticism. And so if only there were more of us, you can imagine that temptation. If only there were more of us, then people would take our decisions seriously. You can imagine uh, a session in a situation like that just yearning for those, those extra elders. Uh, and you can imagine, right, it would be so tempting to bring someone on the session even though he's not ideal Maybe he's not quite ready. Maybe you can just, even just in talking to him, you can see how proud he would be to be an elder. You can see how, you can see the immaturity perhaps that would, could manifest in lots of dangerous things. And yet you say, but we need him, right? Um, the temptation is there to be hasty in the laying on of hands. Um, or you could imagine a session where the work is, is more than the men can handle, um, I've known, known uh, pastors in churches of 300 plus where they had two or three elders for the entire church. How do you give good shepherding care for a congregation that size with that many men? You can imagine them saying, we really need more of us. Such a temptation to lay on hands quickly. But what does Paul say? Well, if you look at Titus 1.5, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. But in, in Titus 1.5, he says this to Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed. So just think about what he's saying to Timothy, right? Think about this. Paul does not expect putting elders in this church to be quick work. 
Because if it was going to be quick, he would have just done it himself. He would have gone to this church. He would have said, ah, you look like you'll be a great elder. Here, I'm going to lay hands on you and see you later, brother. And then just go to the next town and do the same thing and just boop, boop, boop. You know, it's like duck, 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 goose. He could do that if it was an easy thing or a quick thing for someone to become an elder. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, Titus, you need to stay because this is long haul work. This is time consuming. You're giving yourself to each of these men. You're, you're sharing with them the wisdom that you have. You're sharing with them what they need to know. And you don't leave that place until they're ready. Then you go to the next one. So, so it's not supposed to be something that he hurries at. This is going to take Titus's full presence for the long term. Appointing elders takes time. So I, as you're, there, there's a reason why I'm telling you these stories and the reason why I'm dwelling on this. It's because I want you as a congregation, if you've never been on a session, I want you to feel the tension and I want you to feel the temptation. I want you to feel the, the desire here for elders. I want you to sense why somebody would think we need to have them now. We need to have them now, not later. But that isn't God's way. He, he wants the process to be slow. He intends the process to be time-consuming. Why? Well, he gives the answer in our second point, which we'll get to. But before we go to that second point, I need to address a rabbit trail. And it's verse 23. Um, I want to say something about verse 23 because I am completely of the belief that in the middle of his thought, Paul says something that he's got to get down. I don't know if he's concerned he's going to forget it. I'm not sure if Paul is, 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 uh, has any other concern except that, oh yeah, I need to tell this to Timothy. And so he, I think he interrupts his thought to say this. I think it's good that the translators put this in parentheses, actually, because Paul is showing something here in verse 23. He's telling him, hey, look, no longer drink just wine. Drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He cares about the physical well-being of Timothy. And so he says, drink a little wine to help your stomach. There are just two things I want to draw from this, and then I want to move on. The first is this, and it's just really obvious. It's Maybe, maybe too obvious, but it's just this, that in and of itself, alcohol is not sinful, right? I, I don't know if I need to say this to this crowd, but I was once in a church where the minister proclaimed from the pulpit, alcohol is the devil's poison, and if you touch even a drop of it, you're committing a sin. And to be honest, I didn't stick around and ask him what he thought of, of this verse, but let's just acknowledge this, that if it's the devil's poison, then Paul's telling Timothy to drink it, uh, I think that at least shows that it's as a substance in itself, it's not sinful. So I don't want to dwell on that. I think it's obvious. But the thing that we really couldn't draw from this, and I think we should draw from this, is that Christians should care about their own physical well-being. Right? He's telling Timothy to take care of himself. Uh, Paul clearly knows this. Look, if Timothy's health deteriorates, it's going to affect his ability to minister. He, he needs to take care of himself for the sake of the churches that he's serving, right? That church in Ephesus needs Timothy to be well. They need Timothy to, to be healthy. Um, I like how Calvin says it. He says, every person should, should attend to his own health, not for the sake of prolonging his own life, but that as long as he lives, he may serve God and be of use to his neighbors. So the, the thought, 
Why should I take care of myself? The answer is not so that I can live longer. The answer is so that I can serve longer, so that I can be of use to God's people because, because I would be missed if I didn't take care of myself. Right? That's, that's basically what Paul's telling Timothy. Take care of yourself, brother. Um, this has been really relevant in 2022, a year where Americans have been very focused on their own health, uh, thinking a lot about staying healthy. Um, physical well-being is something that Americans have, especially lately, been very, very focused on. But it doesn't exist for its own end. We don't take care of ourselves simply because we want to live longer. It's a way of serving and loving others. Um, now, I think Americans actually are very devoted to their own physical health, but I suspect it's because being sick is unpleasant and it's inconvenient and it's costly. And Calvin is saying that actually the issue is if we're sick, we're not going to be of use to anybody, right? If we're sick, we're going to be limited in how we can serve. Suddenly we're going to become a drag on others. Others have to take care of us if we don't take care of ourselves. And so Timothy needs to take care of himself for the sake of Paul. He needs to take care of himself for the sake of, of the, the Christians in Ephesus. We should make sure to take care of ourselves so that we can serve others too. Now, I do think this aside, it was important for Paul to include. It was inspired, so Paul was supposed to put it in there, and we were supposed to see it. But I, but I also think that if we spent any more time on it, we would lose the larger point that Paul is, is chasing. So the larger question, though, is why Paul wants Timothy not to be hasty in laying on hands as we were just talking about. And so that takes us to our second point, which is the danger of sin. It comes out in verse 24. He says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Uh, in the contemporary church, one of the things that's troubling is this tendency to almost treat service in the church as a job in a business. Right? Sometimes sessions can be guilty of thinking of their own work and the work of the church staff that way. Uh, sometimes pastors can even think of their own work that way as well, right? It's so professionalized. Um, while there are, are doubtless administrative aspects to running a church, sometimes it seems to be taken too far. Um, it isn't unusual to hear language borrowed from the business world employed to talk about the work of the church. So in, in such a situation, it's easy for church leadership to to look for the wrong things in an elder, right? We need business acumen, experience in personnel development, knowledge of how to run a profitable enterprise. Um, many may be tempted to think that what we need is someone with worldly experience, and they, and they might be tempted not to be concerned about personal character and integrity. Uh, instead, some may think, you know, this man is successful in the business world. Surely he'll be a good elder for the church. But Paul's focus is not on the question, does he know how to develop and execute a long-term vision strategy? Does he know the five key development strategies that all organizations need to implement in the next two years? Synergy. Um, Paul is he's focused on character. And he wants Timothy and the elders in Ephesus to be focused on character. Please don't rush, he says. And, and, and character is not readily apparent. Here's why you shouldn't rush. Right? Character is not something that appears in a moment simply by looking somebody in the face. Right? It, it, it's one thing to make a good first impression. Anybody can perform. Almost anybody can perform. 
they can put their best foot forward. They can try their best to be well-behaved. But all of that, that performance doesn't erase who a man really is when his guard is down and when people really get to know him. When Paul says the sins of others appear later, he's saying that in many cases it takes time to see someone's deeper sins. Now, I, you may notice that I like including quotes from the church fathers maybe in our bulletins, but I don't tend to bring them into the service because the point of quoting somebody is to make something simpler. In this case, quoting a church father actually does help simplify, I think, what's being said. So listen to Jerome talking about this text. He says, the words mean this. Certain persons sin so deliberately and so flagrantly that you no sooner see them than you know them at once to be sinners. But defects of others are so cunningly concealed that we only learn them from subsequent information. Right? Sometimes you don't find out right away. Now, just to be clear, we saw this a while ago. Paul's standard for elders is not sinless perfection. All right? No one could be an elder except Jesus in that case. You'd have one elder in the whole church, and he would be in heaven ruling that way. Paul's, Paul's, Paul's standard is not perfection. Paul is talking about sins that are a direct threat to the church, sins that may tear apart the unity of the church by attacking its purity and peace. See, Paul says, be slow. Observe his life. Why? Because he says in this text, some sins are obvious, right? The person who constantly shows up stumbling with liquor on his breath and, and slurred speech, you know, he obviously has a problem. The man who blows up at the smallest things and is obviously filled with rage obviously has a problem. There, there are some sins that don't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out that, that that's going on. But he says, some sins are not obvious like that. They show up with time. And it just so happens that those deeper, harder to see sins are the ones that can be the most dangerous to the health of the church. And this is for a variety of reasons. You know, the deeper they are, the deeper the shame. The more shameful, the greater the effort to hide and bury them. Deeper hidden sins are the type the type that one is slower to confess, or maybe they're slower to even see. A lot of times this person is hiding it even in their own heart. Self-deception is a very real problem, and a self-deceived leader who doesn't see his own heart is a danger to everybody. Sometimes it takes a long time to really know someone. You know, you see them in a variety of situations. You see them going through various life events. None of these things reveal themselves quickly. There's no microwave solution to this. It just takes time. Paul's concern for Timothy is if he doesn't exercise due diligence, if he doesn't exercise care before ordaining a man, he will share in his sin. So he's saying if we behave irresponsibly, we threaten bringing reproach on the gospel and upon the church of Christ. There's so much on the line. But for Paul, he says, if, if we're irresponsible, we share in the sin. He says, if you rush, he says, you take part in the sin. In verse 22, you know, think of Pontius Pilate washing his hands. You know, he washes his hands, and what is he doing? He's essentially trying to say, this isn't my fault. I don't bear responsibility here. But when elders lay hands on, on a candidate for ministry, it's the opposite. If, if they rush, 
if, if they rush, then they're actually sharing in the failures of this man's ministry. This is another reason why ministry failures are so devastating. They're devastating because they touch all of us, including those who ordain them, if they were hasty in laying on hands. Now, because of that, in the second point, Paul mentions the danger of sin. We need to be warned by it. We need to be warned. Third, however, we have the hope of holiness. You see it in verse 25. You know, just like, like laying on of hands hastily on someone may make elders liable for his sin and the destruction that comes upon the church. <coughs> so too, though, when they're prudent, when they're careful to ordain someone, the session also gets a share in some responsibility for the fruit and the, the beauty of that man's ministry as well. There's this uh, beautiful and positive side to ordination. There's this, there's this hopeful, joyful reality that, that we're, we're not to look with suspicion at, 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 at ordinance. We're not supposed to look with squinty-eyed suspicion. Instead, we should be wise, we should be understanding, we should be discerning. But we should be also be very glad to think of all the good that the Lord intends to do through somebody. Look at what Paul says in verse 25. He said, so also, he's like saying this is the flip side. Good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Right? He's not just negative. He is not telling Timothy to just be negative. He's not telling him to live with persistent suspicion. You might remember that quote that I shared from, from, Am, from, from Jerome where he said that, that Paul is claiming some, men are, some sins are so flagrant that you know the, the person right away, while some sin takes time to see. But there was a second half to this quote that I didn't read, and I want to read it to you as well. He says this, Similarly, the good deeds of some people are public property, while those of others we come to know only through long intimacy with them. He's talking about good deeds here. The good deeds of some people are public property. Um, just like it takes time to see somebody's sin, it also takes time to see someone's godliness shine through. Uh, and when it does, it's more beautiful because you know it's not engineered for you to see. Uh, my best friend, someone I met at college 15 years ago, fun fact, we were in a terrible class. We were paying way too much at a private Christian college. Uh, if you go to a Christian college and you take every required class. Some of those classes are not money well spent. Um, I think in this case, this class was not $600 well spent. Now it would probably be $1,200. Uh, but th th this was not $400 well spent. We were in a class that was supposed to be about missions. And what did the teacher do? He gave us a bunch of magazines and said, I want you to make a collage that tells other people what you are like. I was like, I was a grumpy old man even back then. I was 20 years old, like, <sighs> And uh, so I was sitting at a table with this guy who would become my best friend because after we finished our collages and we, everyone in the room could see how unhappy we were uh, to do this, everyone else is like, so we put together these collages and then and we were both like frowning, like, so then we were sitting near each other. So he said, now I want you to present your collages to each other. And both of us pre ha had two things in common on our signs. One was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
It was all we could find, and they were in the magazines. And C.S. Lewis references. So we both had C.S. Lewis and Ninja Turtles references, and we were fast friends for life after that. And even today, every he tried to call me during Sunday school last week. Uh, we still are constantly in contact with each other. I can testify to this. After a decade and a half of friendship, I am constantly see the, seeing the Lord at work in his life in ways I didn't know on day one when I met him. Right? I, I'm seeing... I'm seeing him grow in love for God. I'm seeing him grow in love for his people. I'm seeing him become wiser, more careful, right? Things that that were only words and ideas a decade ago have been put into action since then. We both knew we wanted to be pastors even back then. Even on that grumpy day when we were frowning at the, the teacher, we were both like, yeah, we want to be pastors. And now those things have happened, and now we're doing the things that we dreamed of as, as young men. And, 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 you know, what I see in him is that there is good, that God is working in his life, and it doesn't remain hidden anymore, but it was hidden for much of the time we knew each other. And, and maybe you have those sort of relationships. I hope you do. Statistics are saying you have less friends than ever and that people have less friends than ever. I hope that's not the case with you, especially in the church. But I hope you have relationships where you know someone more, and the more you know them, the more your esteem for them grows, right? Not to draw uh, too much attention to her. I feel that way about my wife. Maybe you have spouses. You feel the same way, right? You change over time. You grow over time, and you don't remain the same people. But the longer I know my wife, the more I grow in my esteem of her and how she pours herself out for me and her family and her church. She's blushing. Do you have people like that in your life where you see the person they're growing into and you didn't see who they would be back then and now you do? Um, I suspect you do if you know other Christians and if you're in the church. Sometimes it's easy to be down on the church. It's easy to be down on Christians. It's how I started out. Easiest thing in the world. I just said, how do I start off this sermon? And I did the laziest thing I could think of and I said bad things about the church. Um, but we can neglect this really good thing that God has been doing right in front of us all the time. Paul ends on this note of warning to the church. He's warning the church. He says, you really don't want to be hasty. You don't want to share in the sins of others. But it's almost like Paul, even, even Paul doesn't want to be too sour. He doesn't want to send Timothy away with this bad taste in his mouth. You know, it's like he's saying... Yes, these things can happen, and you should face that reality directly. But he wants to end with this thought on a good, positive note. He says, good works are conspicuous too, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. If I could paraphrase, he's saying, yes, there's obvious sin out there. There is, there is sin that's easy to see. There's sin that's harder to uncover. But there is also a lot of good that God is doing as well. Your, your sin will be exposed one day, but not before then, on the day of judgment. But the same goes for the good. The same goes for the good. Now, I need to say this because it's very easy to forget. The church is lovely. The church is Jesus' bride. The church is beloved by God. The church is, is, is lovely. The church is dressed in Jesus' own righteousness. And sometimes there are critics of the church within the church, and it seems like they forget that. They forget who they're talking about when they're talking about God's church. I'm not saying that the criticisms aren't always earned, but they need to be balanced by what God himself, 
genuinely, truly, from the bottom of his own heart, says about his people. And he says, you're my beloved and I love you. Because sin, even among God's people, is quite real. But this is worth remembering. There are many people who spend themselves and they serve and they give their time and they give their energy and they give their finances and they, and they, and they give their hard work and their effort. Our musicians come in here not only throughout the week practicing here in the sanctuary, but they practice on their own over and over again. They're running through these songs that they're helping us to be able to sing. They care about this church. They care about what they do, and they do it well. And part of the reason why they do it well is so that you won't focus on them when we're singing. So we're not thinking about the musicians so that we're thinking about the Lord. They're, they're there are people who pray for this church and they pray for the elders and they pray for me and they pray for this congregation. And sometimes I find out by accident or I find out by prying maybe, but they're not coming to me and saying, hey, just so you know all the wonderful things I'm doing for this church, I'm praying for this place. But there are people in this church that pray for it constantly and none of us see it. It isn't done for recognition. It isn't done for a reward. It's simply because they know that this church needs it and they love the church. We have Sunday school teachers. They spend their time each week preparing to serve the children of our congregation. We have people who prepare snacks to share each week. We have people who come and water our flowers and they decorate the building. All of these things are done in secret. These people don't serve for attention or, or so that I'll say nice things about them in the pulpit. They do it because God is worthy. These are the sort of works, the sort of efforts that aren't conspicuous but there will come a day when they will be. They will be conspicuous. There, there, there will come a day for all who serve and who, who love God where the Lord will look you in the face and he will say, well done, you served me, you loved me, you love my people, you poured yourself out even in secret. Some may never know how much you do in this life, how much you serve, but isn't there an interesting comfort in what Paul says here? Your good deeds done from love for the Lord will not remain hidden forever. And they, and they will become public property. And we'll see and we'll know what you've done for Jesus. One day the good that we easily miss, then it's going to be seen and God will be glorified even more. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is true that your bride is not perfect yet. She is a redeemed bride, and she wears a borrowed righteousness that comes from your son. Much like Joshua, the high priest, there are plenty of voices around reminding us of the flaws and the filth of your church. And many leaders in your church have disappointed. Yet you still look your people in the face and say, you are mine and I love you. Would you give us a love for your church? Not only that, but would you fill us with a love for you that shows itself in service, service that is done for you and not necessarily for others to see? And would you remind us that there's coming a day when even the good of your people will no longer be hidden? Fill us all with a love of you that fuels and drives us forward into lives of love and sacrifice and service. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.